Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 128. I have invited a wonderful guest, Mark Choit, onto the show today, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a sec. But today, Go Low Tox, the e-course, has started. And if you haven't jumped in yet and you wanted to jump in, now is your chance. I always leave the cart open for an extra couple of days because I know life gets busy and then you think, oh, I wanted to do that. And I've done that myself. So I'm very lenient on that front and uh, appreciative of different people's situations. So you can head to lowtoxlife.com and click on the courses tab and you'll see Go Low Tox right there. Uh, we have earthing and grounding as our very first topic. And this is the first of 25 topics that will be rolled out in the next five weeks. And we cover literally everything you could think about in your toxic load lowering uh, quest across every aspect of daily life. So uh, something that a lot of students find that they kind of join the course just because they're curious, even though they might have done a whole bunch of swapping already through personal care and cleaning products. But by day three or four, once we've done all the endocrine disruptive stuff, the research behind that, we really... Uh, see so many students go, whoa, I thought I knew a lot. Now I really, this is fantastic. I had no idea. I didn't even think of that. And we get all those sorts of comments. So I do encourage you to do this if A, you're that kind of person or B, you're a person who just has a lot of questions. Unfortunately, in our inbox, in the Instagram PMs, in Facebook Messenger, you know, there's so many different places I get messages and it's up to about a thousand a week and I cannot reply to them all everywhere. I would literally not get any work done for you guys in the bigger picture of things. And this is exactly why I created this course is to take you through as your personal coach. And I'm there answering everything five weeks, twice a year, you have me. And it is the most time effective um, and difference making way that I could think of to do this because everybody sees the answers. You know, I'm there workshopping with you guys. Here's what's a red flag on that label. Here's a company that you could ask a question to because they haven't disclosed that on their website. We workshop all of this for five weeks so that I get you at the end of this course feeling completely empowered going as deep as you need to, to also be literate enough to be able to share with people why you're making these choices. If they ask, you know, if someone gets barked at with everything's toxic or that's toxic or the aluminium will kill you. And then they ask you why, and you can't answer. We wonder why people don't jump on board gleefully and enthusiastically when we can't even back up what we're saying because we haven't gone deep enough to really understand why. So that's why the course exists. And uh, many people who've read the book are wondering what the difference is. And really the difference is the coaching, the fact that you can actually then start to go over everything and have a look at labels and have a look at brands and have a look at what you might not need altogether anymore because that's a huge part of this, simplifying things. Um, and then you have the, all the interviews. So we're up to about 30 interviews from incredible experts, people with PhDs, environmental scientists, practitioners who really bring these topics of um, low-tox living to life. And then we have um, 
What are some of the other differences? There's heaps. Well, there's the fact that the course contains three times the information that the book contains because we have over 3,000 different international resources. Uh, the resources for um, the different countries now comprise not only Australia, where we've got a bucket load of resources, but also really extensive resources across all the topics for the UK now, the US. Uh, we've got a few Canadian resources as well, some New Zealand resources. So we really want this to be as helpful as possible to as many people as possible. And the fact that you just do it with a group and everyone's like-minded and coming together with the same goals, the energy in that private Facebook group is nuts. It's just so beautiful. People have made lifelong friends through that group. And, uh, and you know, not to mention some of the very joyful health benefits that people have experienced, everything from ditching headaches that they'd had for their entire life or hay fever, right through to being able to have a child. Um, you know, I've been introduced at birthday parties as the woman who um, made B, for example, um, when I was at a, a people who became friends because we were also at the same gym and they were doing the course. And, um, and that's how I was introduced. This woman was the one who made B because she made the course that we did that we then were able to have a baby because we got rid of all the endocrine disruptors. Now, I can't promise fertility for everyone, of course, um, but it is just amazing to start hearing some of the stories that people share towards the end of the course and beyond in the alumni group about how things change for them in doing it. So I'm not going to blab on anymore because today's show really is riveting, but this is your last chance. Jump into lowtoxlife.com, hit the courses tab and choose your um, your level that you want to join at. You can join at basic, by the way, if you need to split the payments over a couple of months because we then release the upgrade link and then you can upgrade to lifetime access in a month's time. So there's that if you need to split payments. I hope to see you there. It's a really uh, beautiful start to the day and I know by the end of today we're going to see all people with pictures of where they got in touch with nature and got grounded and barefoot or um, people who found really good resources from our lists online for getting earthing mats and things, especially if you're up in the Northern Hemisphere, winter is not exactly an easy time to get grounded, unless you're Wim Hof, of course. But uh, yeah, so I hope to see you there. Anyway, on to this show. So Mark Choit is the president of Reflective Jewelry. It's a company he co-founded with his wife, uh, CEO and creative director, Helen Chandler in 1995. And he initiated the first ever ethical jewellery blog in 2006. And that kind of evolved into the Fair Jewellery Action Group um, and it's a human rights and environmental justice network. So really at the, the core of Mark's being is activism. He has a huge sense of social justice and this has proliferated over his entire working life. Um, and in the way we came to find uh, Mark's work was last year, in October 2018, he published an ethical jewellery expose. So not even just regular jewellery, but actually having a look at what gets called eco-friendly or ethical jewellery these days. And he called lies, damn lies and conflict-free diamonds. So you might be thinking you're buying something where people haven't been harmed or um, been taken advantage of in any way, or the earth hasn't been destroyed in the mining. 
process, but unfortunately there is a lot to learn about where jewellery comes from. And today's show is quite um, heavy, but really riveting. And I always say you can't feel guilty about what you didn't know yesterday. We have to get excited about what we're going to change from today. And jewellery is no exception. And our community has moved through an awareness of food and then through personal care and cleaning and then through furnishing and textiles, clothes, etc. It is only natural that we then continue the journey on. We looked at flowers last year. We're now looking at jewellery. And so it's really important, I think, that we stay with the heaviness and go, oh, my gosh, um, and then in future we know to be a lot more discerning uh, Mark actually is the only fair trade ethical jeweler uh, certified in the entire USA as it is right now. And I've challenged all of us to try and find a um, an ethical jeweler near our locale, wherever you live in the world, and share it in the comments of today's show notes so that we can actually start to see that there are some people doing it right. Um I hope you enjoy the show. It is, uh, it's definitely an expose, that's for sure. And I look forward to your comments on social. Um, enjoy. Hey, Mark, how are you? Good, good. Uh, it's great to be here on your show. I am really excited to have you here on the show. I am not, I'm just going to come straight up front and say, I am not a huge jewelry wearer nor buyer. But it has been one of the things that I've been thinking about. You know, I wanted to do an expose on flowers last year to show people that like Kenyan GMO roses really are not the way to go if you live on the other side of the world. Uh, and and jewellery was kind of one of these other topics that I was thinking we've got to find an expert on this, someone who has dug really deeply, someone who's involved in jewellery procurement and, um, you know, getting to source and creating transparency. And we were searching and searching and then boom, we found you. So uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I think this is going to be a really interesting chat because many people do wear a lot of jewellery. And of course, you know, often whether they've forayed into more conscious thinking through their food first or whether it was through chemicals, you do generally start to unpeel all the layers and eventually get to what you wear. That tends to be a little bit further down the track. And, of course, so many people wear jewellery. So here we go. Um, Here we go. Yeah, I know, right? I would love to start by just having you share a little bit about your journey, you know, like – how you became a conscious thing was it because you had parents who had these values and so you were born into that or was it an awakening you experienced and then how you then started to realize that jewelry wasn't all that glitters and has a very dark side well it was somewhat my parents my dad was a civil rights activist and was very very political in the 60s and 70s and so i grew up in a household where there was a lot of concern and talk about social justice. And so that was one of the influences. Uh, Then when I graduated from college, I spent two years in Haiti Mm -hmm. as a volunteer. And I like to say that, tell people sometimes that I kind of got my MBA in Haiti Mm -hmm. because I was uh, working uh, for uh, a charity organization that was conducted by the wives of diplomats. And, also, uh, actually working in homes for the dying for Mother, Mother Teresa's clinics. Mm-hmm. And I did that for two years. And 
so after that, I, I ended up kind of changed permanently. I just couldn't think about uh, living a normal life. And I spent some time actually as a teacher for indigenous people, First Nation people here in this country for about five years. And then I wanted to start a, a jewelry business. My wife's a jewelry designer. And so when I went into business, I really couldn't approach it in a, in a sort of straightforward way. First of all, we were designers and we weren't like straight jewelers selling diamonds as a, as a main thing. Mm. We were really approaching it as a more artisanal point of view. But also, there were seeds of social consciousness and social justice that were really deeply rooted in, in both my wife and, and myself. Uh, she, she grew up in Southeast Asia and was born in England. So it's kind of like when there are, we were always looking for ways to align our business values with our concerns for diversity of culture and, and the environment. And that was always like intention, even as we were starting our business. So we were very countercultural from the beginning, how we were raised, how we understood the world and were part of the, a global culture. And so we couldn't really approach business, our jewelry business from a, a straight business point of view. Hmm. And so when you, um, when you say you couldn't appoint, is that because you had already, because I always talk about these questions that allow us to, to really think about whether something is values aligned to us as to whether we then let it into our lives and homes, onto our backs, on around our necks, around our wrists and, and fingers. Um, is where does this come from? How was it made? And am I okay with the answer to those two questions? And often if you do the work yeah. and you search, like you'll, you'll very easily see whether you're okay with that or not. Right. Um, and the big thing is, is um, one of the most interesting things or profound things why jewelry as it is currently sourced is, is this really great metaphor for our times is because the sourcing of jewelry, uh, the destruction, the killing of so many people in wars funded by diamonds, the uh, large-scale mining operations, which are destroying countless ecosystems, that is exactly the opposite of the meaning of jewelry. So you have this mm. really big gap. Huge between, disconnect. Yeah, huge disconnect. And so in some ways, I think that that the disconnect is a perfect metaphor for our time. Mm. And, and it's very, very difficult um, to actually cut through or even think about. People don't even think about that disconnect between what, what the uh, jewelry that they're wearing, actually, how, it was actually, how it's actually sourced. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do when you talk about alignment is finding a way to in the actual sourcing and making of jewelry, have those things actually represent what perhaps a wedding ring might mean mm. uh, for for a couple. Yeah, it means connection, so, yeah. and yet the That's right. procurement of it is so disconnected. That's yeah, it's a great metaphor, sad metaphor, but a great one. Exactly, mm. and so we could go into some detail about this if you want. I I actually approached you because I'd, I'd written an expose and mm. it's called the ethical jewelry expose. It's a 45,000 word 
journalistic expose and yeah. uh, on my website. And it's broken up into several different um, sections. And each section is uh, opening up a Russian nesting doll mm. because the, the way, particularly in, in North America, that jewelry is marketed and how it is being described is a very, very clever means to which you are kept unaware or even deceived in terms of what you're actually doing with the economy when you buy a piece of jewelry and how it actually impacts the producer communities. So mm. yeah, and I did a really deep investigation. Yeah, And we'll put the link to that expose so that people can grab it in the show notes. Um, so please do head over to that because I think it's worth everybody's time to read it. Um, but let's start before we go a little bit deeper into that about yeah. um, sort of some of the factors that are at play in jewellery. So, you know, you alluded to um, mining being ecologically um, damaging in some cases. So it's not just the fair trade aspects, the slavery that you find often, um, and but it's like the, the methods and the processing. And, you know, I was shocked to learn about the mercury implication with gold. So there's a whole bunch of stuff um, at play here. Let's start with diamonds because I think that's, um, you know, many people have seen the film Blood Diamond and I have a personal story about that film where I literally yeah. cried my way through the entire film um, right. because I was just so affected by what I was seeing, knowing it was based on true stories. Um, and right. it was actually the next week I realized I was pregnant with my now son. Um, but right. I had spent yeah. the entire week crying. Obama had been elected. I cried all afternoon during the, the states being counted up. I, you know, blood diamond and all these emotional things were happening. And I was just crying and crying. And then I fell pregnant. I was pregnant. So I realized that that was why my emotions were especially heightened but it didn't escape the fact that that was a true story and my eyes were open to something I had never thought about before. So what do we need to be aware of in terms of the history of diamond mining um, and trade? Like what are some of the – because I really want us to get the hard, cold facts, even if it's something we don't want to hear, even right. if you're wearing a diamond right. right now, please do not feel judged or wrong. We can't feel upset about what we didn't know yesterday, but I feel to move forward in a better way – we need to understand what's happened in the past. Yeah, I just before I go into it, I just want to say like that that um, that deep well of grief. You know, um, yeah. there was really often, really often when I was like writing this expose, I, I'd just be crying over, over um, my typewriter keys. You know, cause like, yeah, because the suffering, the suffering and destruction of of, of our environment, destruction of indigenous and traditional cultures, it's um. I mean, I, I always live like like a threadbare, <laughs> a, a thin a thin skin above that kind of grief, mm. and 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 I encountered it a lot and had to deal with it in writing, because because what I really realized is that, um, and I will get to the diamonds, but we might as well um, when you when you source the sort of um, origin of how jewelry source, we might as well go back to. Um, the emergence of the, the new world and Vasco da Gama going down the coast of Africa for slaves and gold. I mean, and we have new versions of it right now. We have versions that are sanitized and we have marketing that's done in order to make you feel that, that, um, that you're actually just, that, that, that disconnects you from these really hard, 
hard-hitting um, facts hmm. of, of um, particularly starting with diamonds. But let me just uh, give you a bit of background for that. Yeah. Um, the diamond wars were funded between the 80s and in the 80s and 90s and exposed by Global Witness, I believe, in 1998. Mm-hmm. And during that time, um, particularly in the 80s, uh, according to what I read in, a, in an article from the, in the Guardian, um, the beers controlled about 90% of the diamond trade. Now, what these diamonds were being purchased from small-scale diamond miners, and I think we have to distinguish, just so your listeners know, between large-scale mining and small-scale mining, because yes, they're please. very distinct. Mm. And there's 125 million small-scale miners. And, and, 125 um, million? 25 million small-scale miners. And, and, yeah, around the world, and they are digging various minerals. They're digging um, – there's not that many diamonds. I'm trying to remember. Maybe 2 or 3 million with gold. It's between 25, 20, and 25 million. But their lives in general are characterized by extreme poverty, exploitation, um, poor labor conditions, often child labor. Now, this is where a lot of jewelry is sourced. Mm-hmm. I think about 20% of the diamond supply is sourced from these small-scale diamonds. And what was going on in the 80s and 90s was, and De Beers denies, by the way, any complicity in, in the blood diamond scheme, but in blood diamond-funded wars, but, um, but there's been a lot of journalistic reports. I'm not going to get into that particularly mm. at this point, but... What I do want to say is that, according to Amnesty International, um, 3.7 million people died in wars funded by diamonds. And then what happened was the issue was exposed. And and then what resulted from this is this thing called Kimberly certification process, where all the, the um, stakeholders and some of the nonprofit, organiz- uh, nonprofit NGOs, I mean NGOs, not nonprofits, that were involved in the exposure, such as Global Witness and um, Impact Canada, uh, got together at the UN and they formed this thing called the Kimberley Process. Now, and out of the Kimberley Process is this term called conflict-free. And we have to separate, this is really critical, mm. we have to separate the narrative from the process because even though the Kimberley certification process has been widely denounced as invalid by even the... the um, the um, non-government organizations actually founded it. Um, the term conflict-free still lives on and is more powerful than ever. Every diamond is marketed as a conflict-free diamond. And what the Kimberley process actually certifies is rough. They, they only certify the rough diamond. So if, for example, a diamond is polished, then it's outside of the Kimberley certification. And journalistic reports have talked about the Kimberley certification documents being as easily to forge as an old driver's license. Wow. It's, it's requi- it, it requires it, a lot of the, um, particularly, particularly the small scale mining areas, there's not really strong enforcement and a huge amount of smuggling. And um, it, some reports say that between 20 and 30% of all diamonds are black market diamonds. But let me get back to the issue of conflict free and ask you this. Mm. How is it? Right, we'll put this for consideration. Um, so, so there's 3.7 million. Actually, the numbers are up to 4 million at this point because of, of conflicts that have happened since that time. People that have died and wars funded by diamonds, and yet not one, not one person has ever been held accountable 
for these uh, atrocities. So there's been no uh, truth and reconciliation process. There's been no restitution to impacted communities, mm-hmm. all these communities who, who, who still have people who lost their, their parents or they're walking around with one arm hacked off mm-hmm. even now. Uh, so instead, we just have this term conflict-free. So my point is, and this is the title of my expose, Lies, Damn, uh, second part, Lies, Damn, Lies, <laughs> and Conflict-Free Diamonds. Yeah. I, I say there can't, be any, there can't be any conflict-free diamonds because until there's truth and reconciliation, until there's restitution to those impacted communities, how can you even consider the term conflict-free? I mean, if someone kills someone else um, 20 years ago, mm. we, we say they, they still have to be held accountable. You mm. can't say, oh, oh you know, I'm, I'm a conflict-free murderer right now because it was 20 years ago. Yeah. So, so pretty much with the documentation. Oh, because I'm not going to do uh, that again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It doesn't do anything. So, so – with with but with that whole conflict-free narrative, it's all a jeweler has to tell somebody. Ninety-five percent of the time, while well, this diamond is conflict-free, it's certified conflict-free. Kimberly process um, does not uh, has a very very narrow definition, the so-called conflict-free of, of what conflict diamond is, and only relates to wars. Mm. So what happened? Everything fell apart in, in 2011, 2000, and 2009, 2009, 2011. When um, there were all this huge diamond find, find in uh, Zimbabwe, yeah. and there were incredible um, um, people were killed, and there was huge human rights ab- um, abuses, numerous cases of women being raped, et cetera, et cetera. People, it was just a terrible, terrible scene. These diamonds were actually um, Kimberly uh, Process actually certified Zimbabwe as as a place where you get conflict-free diamonds. So this. This was one of the turning points in, in the whole process where, where it became very obvious that the, that the jewelry sector as a whole has to have a conflict-free diamond because diamonds are almost half their business. And so regardless, regardless of, of what's happened in the past, regardless of even what's happening now, um, diamonds are always going to be considered and called conflict-free. Um, and what's, what's at issue here, the people who really need to be, be protected – and I make this point a lot in my expose, are the producer communities, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we want to support, we want our economy If we, as a jeweler. Okay, I'm going to say I want, I've been a jeweler for 24 years. So I, I, I'm deep into the sector in North America. I, I pioneered I pioneered the space. I'm the only fair trade gold jeweler in the entire, entire United States. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that. Mm. Yeah, so, so I pioneered the space. So... Um, so I have a very clear definition of what I think ethical jewelry is, and, and that is, has to do, it has to, and you mentioned traceable, traceability and transparency, and that, that is definitely a component. But if it's not benefiting the producer communities, if it's not benefiting local economy, if it's not allowing the people of the land to have and control the resources of the land and being supported with international markets so they can get a fair price and they can send their their, their um, kids to school and they can feed them and clothe them and live a dignified life. That's what ethical jewelry has to be has to be oriented around. So what you have right now is these large scale mining companies that are saying, well we are we are the ethical jewelers. We are we are producing ethical product. Well what they're doing is they do have transparency and traceability because they have control of source, they have control of the minerals or the gold in the mine. But 
there's nothing, there's very little, um, I won't say it's nothing, but it's not the same as, as working with direct support with small-scale miners. What you have is a neo-colonial hmm. um, paradigm. I was going to say it sounds a bit colonial, like yeah. there's some big it head is. honcho yeah. and lots of underlings yeah. and, and then they get to do That's to right. their underlings whatever they want to make the big boss happy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Hmm. And, and that is primarily what the industry is, is, is touting now as, as ethical because or responsible because basically it's a large-scale mining mining organizations and their retailers that support them basically doing the same thing that they've always done, uh, which is um, sending in big operations, exploiting an area, then leaving it for, for um, leaving it kind of in a ruined mess, uh, mm. typically. Ecologically and, uh, and economically, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because where small-scale mining can take place over dozens or hundreds of years even, and the economy is slow, it's slow money, mm. and it's small-scale, and those are the sort of operations. That is what, that is what I think is the undiscovered, it's the un, untalked-about battleground mm. in, in how we define ethical jewelry. And in the U.S., unfortunately, it's, it's, um, it's, it's been um, a bad a bad, um, uh, a bad scenario in the UK. Um, it's a lot better. I'm not sure exactly what's going on in Australia, but I, I know there's some fair trade gold happening there. There's a few companies that are registered, but mm. we can talk about that later. And fair trade but, has um, really worked hard to be a good certification. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk me through how you then became a fair trade gold certified jeweler? Like what were some of the challenges? Uh, there's so many, there's so many challenges mm. because, because first of all, we, we actually, we actually pioneered the space and there wasn't a lot of support for it and there hasn't been a lot of support for it. Um, and is that because it it's was, simply I, I more expensive or it's just too no, hard no, to shift an industry no. so drastically? Like what's, yes. yeah, no, okay. it's, 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 it's really, it's really because it really gets down to um, how how this country works and who who the controlling interests are and who who's controlling the narratives of the forward facing market narratives and how they're collaborating. Mm. So it's it's not that it's more expensive in the in the U and let me just say like how it happened in the UK. You had these pioneer small scale um, studio jewelers who really were interested in ethics. And these banded together, and they actually had a lot of influence on the sector as a whole. And then you had a really strong press that was very interested in supporting this fair trade initiative. And, and also, you had people in, uh, in, in the Fair Trade Foundation of the UK who were really strong. The fair Trade Foundation in the UK is much, much stronger um, as an organization than... Um, than fair trade is in the U.S. And part of that is because of the way fair trade uh, happened in the U.S. There, there was a split in the network and this big organization called Fair Trade USA um, split from the Flow Network and Flow had to come in and start a new organization. So there was just a lot of fragmentation. And then in the U.S. as well, and I go into this in, in my expose and in one of the um, supplementary sections where I talk about compare the U.S. And, and, and what's happening in the U.K., as, as a study in contrast, 
But what happened was that the small scale, the small studio org, uh, jewelers um, who were coalesced um, around an organization, what they actually did was they reached for the radical center. And I don't know, let me define the radical center. It's like, it's like they reached across to the large, the large corporate interests and said, who invited them in and said, you know, we want to try to change the industry from within. Mm. And what happened was essentially that initiatives for small scale mining and ethics um, tied to uh, producer communities basically um, fell apart in this country and never really got off the ground um, because of this radical center stance. And I was someone who was not willing to um, step into that um, uh, space with, with those large, with, with my colleagues, who, people who I worked a lot with. And I went with a fair trade uh, initiative and uh, stuck with it and, and became the first fair trade gold jeweler here in the United States in 2015 and uh, since that time, it has been a struggle. It has, it has been a struggle because I haven't had, I haven't had the sort of manufacturing background and support that mm. um, they, in the UK uh, people do. And I've had to, I've had to deal with irregular supply chains and had to import my gold from from England. Uh, there's all kinds of really big struggles with pioneering, uh, uh, being so far out in front. Yeah, and not having any um, any real press support. And then also in the U.S. as a result, um, the U.S., everybody went with recycled metals as ethical, which is, think about it, that's dirty gold going to a refinery and being branded as recycled gold, ethical gold. And so it has, again, that, that is the paradigm. That's the leading edge in this country mm-hmm. is recycled gold being ethical. And it, it's really greenwashing. Yeah, because every industry has their version of greenwashing. I think like all natural or sustainable palm. Right. Most of the time that's exactly. not sustainable at all. Uh, there are, of course, some excellent uh, exceptions. But, um, yeah, the, a lot of people piggyback off blanket terms that tell the consumer a story they want to believe about themselves so that right. they still buy the right. thing um, but tell that's a few right. white lies at the same time. So can that's you just right. – like let's just – make sure we understand why recycled gold is dirty. Is it the, is it chemicals used in the processing of it as well? Or is it just that it comes from bad sources to begin with, but then it gets to piggyback off the fact that it's been recycled to sound better than it actually is as a raw material and where it came from originally? Is that what the problem is? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me just get into, into a bit of a subtlety here because Back in 2007, 2008, uh, Earthworks ran this this campaign. I don't know how how global it was, but it was very effective called No Dirty Gold. Mm-hmm. And the only alternative at that point was for jewelers to do was just recycle gold. And for a while, you could say, okay, that's the best practice. Practice at least it's doing something. I mean, jewelers have been recycling metals forever. That's that's what they do. Everybody recycles metals. Mm. But but um. Once fair trade gold came in, then the situation is it became a lot different because because recycled gold basically is untraceable gold, and I pretty much consider that gold that is untraceable has has wrecked some kind of environmental damage. In small scale mining, the issue is mercury contamination. Small scale mining, 25 million small scale miners, 
that produce about 20 to 25% of the world's gold supply. Um, it's the largest contributor of global mercury contamination after coal-fired plants. Whoa. Now, with large... Yeah. So, um, I so, just read a Sorry, statistic. I need to pause you there so yeah, I can ahead, really ahead, understand yeah. this. Go so, ahead. mercury contamination, meaning it's in the ground with the gold, so when it's mined, it's exposed, or it's in the no. gold? No. It's, it's mercury... You can go on, on my website. Um, yeah, I'll make sure we actually include something images. on the show notes. Yeah, mm. yeah. Actually see people, photos I've taken of people sticking their hands in water with dirt where they're mixing the gold and the dirt and the water, and the mercury amalgamates the gold. And then what they have to do is burn the mercury mm. off, which they do in frying pans, which they eat with. Oh, and so, my and gosh. So, yeah, all right. So you get it. Mercury is one of the most dangerous neurotoxins in the world, right? So, so that's small-scale mining. So that's what we have to what we have to do is, is is support these people. So they're not doing that. So and we have a product that we have gold from these small-scale mines, and and additionally, these small-scale miners are paid maybe seventy percent of the value of the gold. They don't have access to international markets. They're destroying entire watersheds. Mm. They are destroying their, they're ruining their own bloodstream and, and their own health for, for life, for their entire life. And this is the state of, of small scale mining. And what we need, what we need is market support to alleviate these exploited um, people um, who live impoverished lives because they can never get ahead. I mean, I, I saw situations in Africa where these small-scale miners are basically paid with a sack of dirt. They have to get the gold out of the dirt, and then they get their 3 or $4 worth of gold. They go and sell it, and they buy the food they need, and they start over and over again. And this is the vicious cycle. Mm. I mean, and, and this mercury is destroying huge watersheds all over the world with these small-scale miners. So, what could, so they be using, gold, what could they be using instead? How could they be doing it differently without the mercury? Okay, so they can they can be trained, and in fair trade, they incentivize people to they incentivize small scale miners to get off the mercury. Mm. But you have to kind of learn to to, to crawl before you can walk. And they yeah. start using with retorts, and the retorts allow you to capture the mercury so it doesn't get into the environment. You can reuse it over and over again, and that's the first step. Mm-hmm. But then I think the premium I think it's fifteen or eighteen percent more premium um, if they actually do it without mercury. And there are ways to do it through crushing the rock, dry stacking, um, um, and, and some of the other operations, cyanide, which, you can, be, which can be neutralized. So there are, there are other alternatives. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, but I, I want to circle back to your original question, which is like um, going back to the dirty gold question. Yeah. So 20, so 20%, these 20%, 25%, 20%, 25% of small-scale miners are 90% of the world's gold labor. Mm-hmm. 90% of the world's labor in wow. mining. And then the rest of it, is large-scale mining, is um, 80, 80, 75 to 80%, and 10% of the labor. And large-scale mining, gold mining, is one of the most toxic, destructive activities in the, in the world. So either, the, either the, the dirty gold, which is recycled, is coming from small-scale mining, or it's coming from large-scale mining. And either way, it's dirty gold. So when you're buying recycled gold, you're not helping 
the small-scale miner, and there's a difference because with small-scale mining, it's the politics of, of bread. They're doing it to feed themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, the small, the large-scale mining is just about it's just about the bottom line and profits. That's making, yeah, mm. yeah, and that and ending up with a bunch of gold sitting in some bank somewhere doing mm. nothing. A lot of it, and we have plenty of that. We don't need more gold in the world. There's plenty of gold sitting around doing nothing. Um, for, so, what we need to do. That's why I say, what we need to do is we need to find an ethical jewelry gold that that actually supports these small-scale miners, so that so that you're wearing something that is actually creating a more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. Mm. You're creating, you're supporting regenerative economic model. You're, um, you're supporting a new jewelry story, which aligns your concern for, for, um, for community and concern for the environment on your finger. And it's a very, very small, very small initiative, but it's possible to do this through fair trade gold. And so that's why getting back to your original question that's why we have to say that recycled gold, which once was cutting edge, is now being used as a way of... of perpetuating the current issue. Perpetuating, yeah. yeah, perpetuating. And also it makes you seem, it makes a company seem like they're doing something. Mm. Because, oh, recycled, recycled aluminum, recycled paper, recycled cardboard, it's all good. But for the people who are, the small-scale miner who's mining gold, they're going to mine gold because they have to in order to feed their families. Yeah. We need to support them to do it in a way that can, and the fair trade gold is actually um, solid in, in the global market. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people could live better lives and it's not that much more expensive. Mm. It's not that much significantly more expensive. Um, and so does that, does that kind of answer your question about, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it does. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, I, I yeah, think okay. I, th- yeah. I recorded an amazing show with uh, the VP of Dr. Bronner, Garo Lesson, who's um, a PhD in environmental yeah. science and and um, yeah. his his big um, passion is logistic chain, clean logistic chains and rehabilitating communities. Right. So, you know, if for anyone who hasn't heard that show, it was show number 85 to go back and have a listen because we go really deep on how you can take something that would traditionally have been done a really bad way, like palm oil in his um, example that we shared on the show, and literally build a better world through palm oil if you do it right. Um, so, exactly. you know, exactly. the, it's not that yeah. you have to stop using things. It's not that you have to stop getting your nice gold bracelet at Christmas. It's just that we have to literally fund the world we want to step into in our future. Exactly. And to do that, we've got exactly. to do a bit of investigative work. We've got to align ourselves with brands that actually tell a real story instead of a sugar-coated story. And it gets easier yeah. and easier to spot the difference over time. It's a bit of a muscle. You have to kind of build it up and, it is. and you get smarter yeah mm. it's particularly it's particularly onerous in the jewelry sector to try to do this and and um, that's why i mean and i'm just going to give you an example from from the even the blood diamond film how tricky this whole thing is because because dicaprio um actually invested in this diamond brand that is lab-grown diamonds mm-hmm. and sure there's nothing wrong with lab-grown diamonds um it, it's a, it's a good initiative it it, it, it doesn't involve any mining, involves a lot of electricity, but here he is. He could have, he could have dumped two or $3 million into a fair trade diamond initiative, funded fair trade, and we'd have a fair trade diamond 
or the beginning of a fair trade diamond um, that that is a model for what exactly I'm talking about with fair trade gold. We'd, ha- we'd be able to support a small scale mining community with their diamond initiative. And, and, and instead he didn't, he didn't understand how his throwing money and investment in, in, a, in a lab grown diamond actually undermines and distracts consumers, people buying diamonds from understanding the real issues, which is how do we get, can, how do we get, how do we support the small scale diamond miner? And, the biggest irony of the of of the of of Hall, I mean, and this is this is how clever, how brilliantly clever, the jewelry world is. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there's a an, an, something called the Diamond Development Initiative, and when you look at its history, and I, I trace all this in one of one of the Russian dolls. I, I have multiple Russian dolls that you open up in my expo yeah. and each one is just layer. <laughs> when you when you go back, and you look at this initiative back in 2000, I think it was 2007, 2008, it's called Diamond Development Initiative. Uh, the person who actually was one of the, one of the people started it, um, Ian Smiley was talking about, well, it's going to be based upon fair trade. And they were talking about working with fair trade, fair trade, um, fair, fair labeling organization. And there were studies funded by Tiffany on a fair trade diamond because the market is huge for a mm. fair trade diamond, which is exactly why it's not going to happen. What? Exactly what? Why it's not going to happen. Hold on. Talk, yeah, so break exactly that down. Because, okay. Because, because the diamond sector does not want you to have a different diamond story. They don't want, because fair trade is very disruptive to the jewelry sector because it gets people thinking about producers. It gets people thinking about how do we support those on the ground. And here's the biggest irony of the ball. This this diamond development initiative, which is going to produce diamonds out of Sri Lanka, I'm not Sri Lanka, sorry, um, Sierra Leone, uh, which is where a lot of the terrible blood diamond stuff happened, mm. is now being um, is now being owned by De Beers. Right. De Beers is going to have control of the small scale mining of the of the capital of the community capital that went into this diamond development initiative. It's all being given over to De Beers. So De Beers, and here you can think of the irony. Mm. Think of this incredible irony, what they did in the, in the 80s, what they did in the 90s. All, all that has happened in the diamond world, 4 million roughly, that we don't know, no, don't know exact. All those people killed because funded by wars, no restitution, no, re, no reconciliation. Why? Because um, honestly, because um, those black African lives don't matter, mm. right? They're just, just for the mill in, in some kind of... Um, and some kind of uh, new um, new version or, or repeated version of, of of colonialism, just chewing up labor mm. or um, increasing capital, regardless of the cost to communities, regardless of how many people might die or whatever it is. Yeah. And now, the very people who who um, were involved with that, and there was never 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 any 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 any. Uh, any truth and reconciliations, I keep saying, mm. are the ones who are going to control the most promising fair trade di- diamond mm. initiative, um, which which can't be a fair trade diamond because because fair trade, if it's going to be fair trade, it has to be real. It has to be controlled and monitored by an organization outside, independent. Yeah. Um, of of the, uh, I mean, it, it's it's um, it's a travesty. I mean, if you look at it, if you really look at what's going on, your your mind would, as I have done your mind would spin mm. at the level of 
of cleverness yeah. and how these, how ethical jewelry, ethical jewelry is a really hot trend right now. Mm, ethical really everything is, and, and, which is why we need to be exactly. hypervigilant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now, and now it's, it's, it is a big fight because it's being, because all these, these organ, these companies that have done things, they are rebranding themselves as ethical without changing and creating a huge organization without change, which, which does that a self, which self certifies, mm. um, which, which has been denounced by all these independent agencies. Again, I go into this in detail. My ex was a huge, huge, um, clever, um, manufacturing of consent. I don't know if that's a familiar term to your readership, but, um, it was a, a project by Noam Chomsky. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it, manufacturing it, consent. Yeah. yeah, it's it's absolute. I mean, it's rife in so many industries where, you know, yeah. I, I think one of the big travesties in the um, for omnivores when you eat meat and you choose trying to choose better and you see free range and you think, oh yay, right. that means at least the pigs live a happy life. It's like, well, no, they're being pumped with GMO grains actually, right? And uh, right. and free right. range doesn't mean an awful lot. And free range can sometimes still mean that they're cooped up most of the time. Um, same with chickens. Yep. So it really Same is thing. about, uh, I always say, you know, we can't look at the shiny labels they show us on the ads or the front of packets. We have no. to dig deep down into the ingredient lists, into the websites, ask customer service, ask the retail shop assistant, get, you know, apps that monitor these sorts of things. Cause we have the, the luxury of being able to at least, you know, reach out to good on you or, um, ethical made right. easy and, and platforms like that, that are really doing a lot of the research work for us and start asking the questions. And, you know, yes, it's a hard process. And the, the beauty of it is we probably just end up buying a whole bunch less, which our world could do with as well. And then we trade yeah. up to buying way better and feeling really good about it when we do. It's a beautiful right. thing. It's, right. Yeah. And, and, that's the th- and that's the thing because we want to be in alignment. We want our, our economy to um, – the choices we make with our personal economy to create the world that we really want, mm. that – for future generations. And when we do, and we feel that alignment, whether it's with food or whether it's with clothes or, or whether like, yeah, from shopping at the farmer's market to supporting some artisan or even a larger company that's, that's really on, on the edge of trying to push the edge and trying to do the right thing. It feels, it feels, um, it feels right to us. We know it's right. Mm. We know it's right. We want to live that way. We do. Because we do want to live that way because we want to be, we want to be connected to, to life, the life energy, to this great web that sustains us. And we know, we feel, at least I suspect you know, I know I do, we feel the assault that, that, that's, taking place, that's taking place on our life support systems. We feel it in our bodies all the time. We read the news. And like, so we have to find ways of, of, of creating this greater sense of, of um, community through our actions in the community of, of people and, and um, businesses that are trying to um, create these regenerative economic models, right? That's right. That's what we really want to do. It yeah. feels right. Sustainable is no longer, to- yeah. Sustainable is no longer yeah. a, a word that means much for me because that implies we're yeah. keeping it as it is. <laughs> Regeneration no, exactly. means we're yeah. literally replenishing 
a broken system, broken model, broken planet, broken healthcare, everything. Right. And, um, and it's a much more right. positive, much deeper, harder work, like let's be honest, but we'll come out the yep. other end much stronger. Um, and so to, because we've kind of turned and gone quite positive here, let's stay with that as we move towards um, closing our chat. Um, someone sure. think, you know, someone gets told by their partner, Hey, I'd really love to get you a nice piece of jewelry for Christmas. What do we do now that we've listened to this? Tell us the steps. Like what would you advise is the best way forward for us to start feeling better about jewelry purchases when they arise? Okay. So what I recommend there's, there's, um, there are some fair trade gold jewelers in Australia mm-hmm. and I looked them up and, and I think that those people who are pioneering the space in your country, really, if you can support them, they're going to be the ones who are actually, have actually taken the risk of trying something new. And so I, I would look, I would look there yeah. and, and obviously what for you yourself do, in the U.S.? Yeah, I'm in the U.S. And Where lot, can we buy your jewelry? Yeah, you can buy my jewelry on, on our website, Reflective Jewelry, and we do ship to Australia. We do have some people who buy from Australia. Oh, yay, fantastic. And, you sound so uncomfortable about promoting yourself. But, Mark, you've done well, so much I, amazing I, I work. Never want, I never like, want to contaminate I gotta... these, these, these interviews <laughs> with, like, commercial interest, you know? <laughs> That was because, absolutely not my intention, but I know that people will want some resources and I'm happy to share all the great good that you put out in the world with our okay. people. Of course, right. of course. I know everyone um, would be totally fine with that. So it's Reflective Jewelry. All right, cool. Yeah, it's Reflective Jewelry, okay, reflectivejewelry.com. Cool. And, mm-hmm. and actually, even um, you can look at our jewelry. We're a designer jewelry company, but also you can look under, um, there's an ethical sources tab and you can really learn a lot about these issues. Oh, great. And also uh, like on the, and, and, and you can read my expose and you can, and I've got a bunch of, I also have a bunch of YouTube talks out there mm-hmm. that are additional information. If you want to dig deep into this, I, I really honestly don't, I honestly feel um, I'm pretty confident in saying that this is the best that I've written the best resource. And especially for journalists, um, mm. Because I really wrote it for journalists because it's very hard for journalists to spend that kind of time to understand something in a deep manner because anyway. Well, and it can often be very just, dangerous. Let's not forget yeah. that part of it, going and traveling yeah. and being and, on the ground. Yeah. yeah, and it's a very convoluted It's a very convoluted situation and because and, I've been in it at the beginning, I know many of the players and I know the systems and I know from all these different angles. Anyways, enough about that. Let's get back to you know, the question <laughs> at hand. Yeah. But um oh and oh and there's another thing um which I'm doing which um I would even do for for organizations in Australia which I'm partnering with nonprofit organizations that that um will give them a a code and um if they want if they send their network if suppose you're you're an organization you send your network to and someone in your network buys a piece of jewelry from me um I give them 20% of sales. Well that's amazing. So I'm trying to Yeah, so I'm really trying and that's kind of a, a way of, of me trying to build community, and particularly in North America, but anywhere in the world, because 
one of the big problems in the world is that corporations have too much money and power. And I think that, that people should be paid well, but then we need to put the money that would go to a few shareholders back into the community mm. and back to, back to people who are doing social justice and environmental work and need that kind of support. So like, I'm, I'm trying to make my company, we're just a very small company, but we're kind of working on that model. Yeah. And but, I think um, that's really important because something I struggle with is, you know, as Facebook changed over the years, the algorithm kept changing and it yeah. kept getting more no. and more expensive for us to share our information exactly. with people. And so you're competing exactly. against the Coca-Colas and Mars companies of the world who've got yeah. $50,000 a week to spend on Facebook ads. And I'm yeah, there yeah, with my it. little one or $200 really at a stretch going, and then I it know. shows like 300 people. And I'm like, really? We've got 60,000 people on our page and they never get to see I what know. we do. I know. So I think I know it's exactly. a beautiful way to, yeah. to rally all the ethically minded businesses together and support each other because then we just keep That's sending right. good, caring people in through the network. It's great. Yeah, we are we are universal, mm. cross culture, across. We're all like we're all understanding the urgency of, of, of the matter yeah, that's that, we're, right. that we're facing. We're all looking for a new a starting over place, right? Yeah, that's a place right. Where we can start over. And can we I? to start over. Speaking about yeah, starting over, we've asked, we've talked about diamonds and gold, and I just know I'm going to get a whole bunch of questions about other types of jewelry now that the sort of can of worms has been opened. What about other gemstones? Yeah. Do these issues exist oh, yeah. for emeralds as much as for sapphire, as much as for amethyst, as much yeah. as for even the crystals that people buy to do meditation? Right. Like, is exactly. all of this subjected to the same kind of, um, like, what, question marks we should be placing on our buying decisions? Okay, yeah. So, and I do want to get back to that question you asked I don't, I, for, your, for your listeners about how to buy ethical jewelry. So we're yes, not going to yes, yes, yes. get no, back to that. Yeah. But uh, I will say that with, in the gemstone sector, it's, it's a little bit different than, than the gold sector because about no one knows the exact amount of the number. of um, But it's about 70 80% of, of gemstones are mined by small-scale miners. And so we do have some options where there's some exceptional companies that are, that are actually – either like small scale miners, like there's, there's a, a group of Tanzanian, Tanzanian women who, who have a mining organization that, that I sourced a little bit from when there's a few other companies that are pioneers and ethically sourced gemstones. I think that it's, it's much easier to find sapphires um, that you can feel good about or, or emeralds that, that actually um, can be traced to, to source. Um, so, Particularly in the more expensive gemstones, you, probably you, the, the the people in Australia who who are selling fair trade gold would have a pretty good idea of, of what's available. Now, in the less expensive gemstones, it's much more difficult. Things like garnets, amethysts. Um, I I still sell them, and what I do on my website is I say I actually have a list of everything I sell, and I say, well, I I don't know, I don't have any chain of custody in this, I don't really know where they're from, but um. I'm still selling them, so I'm just transparent mm, that I don't know because okay. uh, um, I I can't um, I, I I I realize that everything is in a transition and and I can't I can't be I've never had I have to adapt uh, according to what I, I I do in order to keep my company going. To, and I don't want to stop selling these stones, but I it's a little bit 
it's a little bit more nuanced, but I think particularly like I know I have I know I have sapphires that are um that are um that I know where they come from and I know the situation and, and also with some emeralds. So I know other jewelers probably have the same. Mm, interesting. So is it a matter of sometimes like these cheaper crystals, um, like because there's less at stake, it's less of a dark industry. Would that be a trend you would sometimes see or? I think, I think that there are, there are issues with, with gemstones that don't occur in mining, don't have mm. the level of, of um, like mercury contamination. And that's also true with diamonds. There's no mercury involved in diamonds or, or it's just basically got crushing rock. Yeah. But um, with the less expensive diamonds, I mean, excuse me, less expensive gemstones, uh, there isn't, there aren't necessarily um, war areas around that. And, and yeah. a lot of, it's, it's not quite the same. I mean, there was some incidents of, of emeralds in Colombia that were, controlled by cartels, but even, even the emeralds in Colombia, a lot of it is, is from small scale mining. And, and again, I, it, it, it could be possible. And there are people who are actually claiming, um, fair trade gemstones. And there's one in, in particular in, in the, in the U S um, and they're, they're distributing a lot. It's called Columbia gem house. Um, I, I know that I know the people involved with them and there are others in the UK that are doing also really good work. And, I, I expect that I, I'm sure that that your your fair trade gold jewelers in Australia would would be much more knowledgeable. What's what's more what's available? Oh, that's great! Uh, in, so it just sounds like yeah. everybody's really in a nascent um, level of figuring this industry out, and at least the questions have started, and traceability has started to be demanded, and what follows once we demand it enough is invariably traceability. So that's. It's great yeah, to know but, that. But we have yeah. to remember have to remember one thing. It's not just about traceability. Hmm. Because all the large scale mining companies, they are traceable and they're transparent because they have control of their resource. We can't just be traceable and, and and that's exactly what they want, is just traceable and transparency and that that's the standard. And I go into a lot in, in the details of why this should not be the standard, but I will say just for your listeners that it's it's difficult, but you'll find that that some of the small jewels who are really concerned about this are doing the research for you. Yeah. And it's really about how do we benefit these producer communities? Mm-hmm. How do we benefit these people on the ground? So the people of the land control the resources of the land. Yeah. That, that to me is really the underpinning of ethical jewelry that they control the resources of the land that, and they are traceable and transparent. And we know that they're being treated fairly and that they are able to have the blessing of, of their own resources mm. in, in their own country and, and to give that to their families and their community and, and to create a, a, a good life. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. I mean, the chocolate industry is working really hard to do it. The coffee industry yes. is working really hard to do it. It's time that we They're hold ahead. the jewelry yeah. industry accountable more and so that they do the absolutely. work. Yeah. I love absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there yeah. anything more you wanted to share today? I mean, you know, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but I'm conscious of the time. Um, if you, I guess, let me ask you this. If yeah. you had to give a person a one project this week, one little research project this week about a piece of jewellery they owned to actually start piecing together where it came from, how it was made, who made it, and if they're okay with that, how would you suggest they go about it? Is it as easy as starting with emailing the company it came from? 
Oh, it's if, if they wanted to buy a new piece of jewelry. No, no, no. Something they have that they've if already they had an ex- bought. Ex- existing. Mm. Oh, I, I think that'd be just about impossible. Really? Because of how I think that'd be just about new impossible. the uncovering yeah. of the industry has been. Okay, right. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think it. Yeah, I, I, if I went to a jewelry store, I mean, it's such an international supply chain and it goes through so many ha- hands. It's very, very, very difficult mm. um, for, for almost, no, almost no conventional jeweler will be able to tell you where their stones come from. Yeah. and where their gold comes from. And and when you ask them the diamonds, I'll say, oh, we're, we're conflict-free. Mm. And you know how I feel about conflict-free. Yeah, I don't yeah. feel like, I feel like there's no such thing as conflict-free diamonds right now, yeah. <laughs> which so, is radical. Really. Yeah, it is radical. Um, but, you know, you're the one who's done all the work to uncover it. And I, I think what you said there about the the conflict-free aspect monitoring one tiny step and also not acknowledging that anything bad has happened in the past, just slapping on a new shiny like label that, yeah, there's, right. there's a lot of injustice in that in both aspects because there I, are many other steps I, in the chain yeah. that aren't conflict-free still. And so we need to be That's right. aware of that. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that like, I'm not saying that I, I think you, I just object to the term conflict-free. I mean, mm. I think that the term, um, like you could say it's transparable and traceable, like, and you know where the diamond is coming from, like your Argoil mine mm. in Australia, which is Rio Tinto, I believe, and, and it's actually closing down. But you could say, okay, I have an Australian diamond from the Argoil mine. Yeah. And that, that, might be, that might be a good choice, even though if you look at the um, Aboriginal people, what they're saying about that mine, mm. it's a different story than what Rio Tinto is saying about that mine. That's right. But that's another, that's another topic. But at least you can say, well, I know where it's from. I just object to this term conflict free. Um, I think it's a lie. Yeah. I think it's I think the term is a marketing lie. But you can source you can source diamonds from Canada and or you can get a lab grown diamond and mm. you you have traceable and transparency traceable and, and transparent supply chain. I think that's the best you can do in many cases. Yeah. At least you have the knowledge of it. At least yeah. you have the knowledge of it. That's right. You just, and that, we're going to yeah. buy differently from now on. Okay, so I'm going to then challenge our community to do a research project and I'm going to say everybody has to find a fair trade gold jeweler in the country they live in or like online somewhere and share the resource in the comments of this week's show notes so that we actually start to feel excited and positive about what we do know now instead of terrified about how horrible this industry is so that we can actually change things. I think that would at least get people jumping online, finding a great um, fair trade jeweler and, uh, and sharing them with the community so that we can see so many good people out there doing great things like yourself, Mark. Do I, do I get my one minute though? Yeah, do it. I get my one oh, Okay, let's do it. I, I just want to say that um, getting back to this idea that we have to find uh, a starting over place and, and like all of us have had like really hard things that have happened in our lives and we get knocked down. And I feel like personally that the measure that we're all here at this time to do this, to, to create this new world. And it's, it's not about, it's, it's, we define ourselves not, not by like how we might look at a really great time, but when, when everything's going our way, but how we can stand up again. Mm. How do we stand up again? How do we find our way back home, home, internal home, 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 like whatever home is to you, that place where, where we know that we are, um, we are creating this more beautiful world that we know that, 
that we can um, build this community and, and start over and, and, and create these seas so that, that the generations after us can, can have something left that's good. Yeah. And so I really hope that, that I'm talking to you uh, across the world. I'm here in, I'm, I'm here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, and um, the snow in the mountains, and it's a very beautiful place. And um, I'm just saying that, that we're all connected. We're all connected very deeply and in this greater global community. And, we're, and, and all the listeners in your show, we share this common concern that, that we want this alignment and, mm. and that we want the starting over place. And, and uh, I just want to express my real gratitude for anyone who's listened to you, to, to, to this conversation and also to you for actually hosting me, allowing me to speak. I really feel so much gratitude for that. And uh, for this really opportunity, I just feel very blessed to have this opportunity. So thanks. Thanks so much. You're so welcome, Mark. It's a painful topic, but you know, if we really want to heal and move towards a better future for people and planet, then we actually have to go through that pain, like the grief of what we have created, either exactly. ourselves or yes. our ancestors, is a very important yes. part of a part of a healing process. I'm a huge believer. Exactly. In that. Yeah. So, I am too. Thank Absolutely. you so so much, and don't forget, everybody, to check out all of the resources that I'm going to share in the show notes, uh, especially Mark's expose, so that you can read it for yourself. Uh, and uh, and let's uh, let's bring a better world of of jewelry to life. I think we can do it. If anyone can do it, it's the low tox community. Thanks, guys, and thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.